Welcome to the Breaking Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. On today's episode, we're speaking with Nick Caldwell, who is the VP of Engineering at Reddit. As of 2017, Reddit has over 500 million monthly visitors, ranking number four most visited websites in the U.S. and number nine in the entire world. A lot of us use Reddit on a daily basis, and on this episode, we're going behind the scenes and speaking with the person who actually is in charge of building it. After paying close attention to our listeners, we realized that a lot of you haven't been inside a tech company before, so we decided to change that. A couple of months ago, Ruben Timor and I started going inside tech companies and recording the Inside a Startup video series to give you an inside look at the people who are building these products. So if you haven't seen yet, visit the Breaking the Startups Facebook page to see the exclusive video tour of Reddit. We take you to their headquarters in San Francisco and show you their offices, their common area and kitchen, and even their new roof. We speak with many of their executives, product folks, and engineers, so tune in to see what roles they're currently hiring for and how to apply. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah. So it's Friday evening. We're coming to you live from Reddit's headquarters. It's been a busy week for all of us. Everyone got back from Labor Day. We had a bunch of interviews this week. We had some campus tours of startups. We actually did a campus tour of Reddit. They have four floors at this dope headquarters in San Francisco. So definitely check it out. It's on our Facebook page. And without further ado, let's break in. So Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yes, sir. So today's guest comes all the way from PG County. His name is Nick Caldwell. He's a VP of engineering. And yeah, like you said, he's from Reddit. He's been in the game for over 15 years. He's worked at a bunch of dope tech companies, including Microsoft, Reddit, and he was also at NASA. So he is heavily involved in the community, works as a facilitator for cool organizations like Dev College. Shout out to McKinda and everybody there. I mean, this whole conversation came about from a meeting where we were at the Texas Jobs Fair. We were just having a conversation and, you know, I heard a story. I was inspired by a story and, you know, felt it was very important to highlight of him because he is actually our first VP of engineering on the show. I let him know that uh, we met Alexis Ohanian, who was one of the people that started Reddit. I'm at their launch party a while ago through Kim My Cutler. Um, so shout out to all of them and welcome, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank welcome you. Thank you, man. So this is, like we said, like our first interview focused on VP of engineering. So for the people that don't know, what is a VP of engineering? What does your day-to-day look like? Sure. You know, VP of engineering at Reddit is responsible for building Reddit. That is to say, all of the software responsibilities come down to me. I run a team of about 100 people right now, and I'm okay. also responsible for building that team to be even bigger. So, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have around 130 engineers. Wow. The day-to-day for a VP of engineering running an organization of that size it's pretty complicated, uh-huh. but I've got five different product teams that work for me. Wow. And the core of my responsibility is to make sure that those teams have the resources and the mission to understand what they do when they come to work every morning. Yeah. 
I'm responsible for delivering high quality software on a clearly understood cadence in a way that delights Redditors. And, wow. and that's my job in a nutshell. That's a really big job. And so I know about Reddit because, you know, we use it. My brother uses it on the day to day. But for the people that don't know, what is Reddit? I know you guys are like the fourth used website on yeah. the internet. Traffic. Well, yep. for, yeah. According to Alexa, that's where that number comes from. Reddit is the fourth most traffic website in the United States. I think we're uh, seventh in the world. Wow. You know, to get into the uh, the details of that, Reddit has about 320, checked it last week, million monthly active users. Wow. Another important metric is time on site. So if you look at how long people spend on all of those sites, Reddit is far and away the most sticky. <laughs> wow. We, uh, you know, I like to call us an anti-productivity software. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> so it's got a huge user base and it, it's popular around the world. Nice, nice. And so just to give a little bit more perspective from what I understand, there are communities on Reddit. That's absolutely the biggest thing about Reddit is that you can find passionate communities about any topic that you might be interested in. Got it. Sports, fashion, politics, education. gaming, anything. Education. Yeah. 1.1 million active communities uh, on the platform. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, you know, I remember, you know, Arch and Timo when they were trying to break in as engineers. Now they're doing it. My brother's now studying as as well. I mean, we featured a lot of people that are junior, but how does someone level up to get to your level? Oh, that's a complicated <laughs> question. So uh, I'll try and summarize it as follows. You got to start somewhere. And mm -hmm. uh, when you begin your career, the fundamental thing you have to do early on in the software career is just write a lot of code. You know, you don't have to worry about anything else other than refining your craft. Pick an area that you're passionate about, front end, back end, full stack, machine learning, what have you, and spend a lot of time wrestling with complex coding challenges. Now, Eventually, you'll come to a point where you need to decide if you want to go into a management track and become what's called uh, an engineering manager. And at that point, you do a little bit less day-to-day -day coding and you focus more on the people aspect. So in my opinion, anyway, great managers can do both extremely well, like love their team. They love you know, figuring out things about the people on their team and they also care about uh, software. So when you're an engineering manager, you lead a team of people to deliver software. Next step up is to become a director. To be a director means that you actually manage multiple engineering managers. So now you've maybe got like 20 people working for you, all different teams, and you have to be able to coordinate resources. That's a difference at the director level. And then one level above that, VP of engineering. And to be a VP of engineering, you have to be able to manage multiple directors and you are a little bit more representing the business strategy and thinking about the direction of the company and that sort of thing. So getting past the director level, you when you become an executive, you think about the outside world a little bit more. Yeah. You know, where you know, what should the company be investing in? What direction should it head over the next couple of years? So that's how you do it. Now, it's hard to make all those to make every one of those jumps I described requires a very different skill set. Yeah. So it took me about 13 years to get to an executive position. Yeah. I, mean, I thought that was a great breakdown. You mentioned something about allocation of resources. What does that mean? Resources when you're a manager can mean a lot of different things, but it generally means money and people. So as a director, you can deploy people to solve different problems. Say, for example, we want to redo reddit.com and make the website look better. Well, we have to decide how many people we should put on that project versus other things we might be doing, like updating the, uh, the mobile application. So when you're a director, you think about all the different business challenges that are in front of you, 
and you put people on those challenges. And then you can also spend money as well. You can, for example, buy tools or you can maybe bring in additional staffing support for testing or what have you. But you basically decide how you're going to spend the company's resources to accomplish business goals. That's very cool. Personally, I came from a background of project managing teams to help them deliver stuff before I became an engineer. So it's always fascinating to me to see like how does an organization like Reddit that has millions of users, how do you guys roll out features going from just an idea stage to actually executing it? And what are the players and stakeholders involved in order to make it happen? Yeah. I mean, the biggest stakeholder in those decisions are users. So in any software company worth its merit, all decisions start with like, what do our users want? So you start there. Now you have to then have a a predictable cadence about when the company decides what it's going to work on. So at Reddit and really most places that I've worked, that cadence is every quarter. So every three months, the leadership, executive team, as well as leadership from product management, as well as engineering management, will get together and talk about what should the company be spending its time on. Usually do that over the course of several weeks and maybe have an offsite where we kind of step out of the office and, and really focus on our strategic initiatives. After we've determined like the broad strokes, like the big things that we need to work on, then we go one level deeper and we say, well, we want to redo the website. We want to have a better mobile app. We want to start working on an ad platform. We're going to need people and teams formed around those objectives. And that leads to thinking about you know, what leaders do we need to put in those parts of the organizations? So you essentially build out your organization aligned to the goals that you want to achieve. And then you go one level deeper, all right? Every one of those pieces of your organization has to have a clear mission and then maybe a list of things that they're supposed to deliver over the next few months. That's really interesting. So every decision is based off of what users want. Um, I've heard that phrase before. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, your goal is to build the best possible products and services for your users. Now, yeah, you know, not literally every decision is based on that, but that's by far in a way the biggest guiding principle. The other thing that I have to think about as a VP of engineering is what's called technical debt. So every time we build a new piece of software, it leaves, if you will, some debt that we have to pay down. We have to maintain, you know, the software that we've created. So in a situation where you're only creating new things, you may neglect some of the older things that you've built and need to maintain. So we balance new things that we want to do for our users along with a software that already exists. Yeah. And for people listening, so you mentioned that Reddit is one of the most highest trafficked website on the internet, number four, and you guys have hundreds of millions of users. So for people listening, can you just break down what it means to run a website that scale? And then what type of technical challenges do you encounter uh, on the engineering side? Sure. I mean, running a site at scale is difficult. You need to hire people who understand operations. So Reddit runs on services hosted by AWS in the cloud, and it is a fairly complicated architecture. And there are specialists who can kind of dig deep and understand the best way to stand up services that can serve traffic to large numbers of people very, very, very quickly. Now, I won't go into all the details of that. I'll simply say that the biggest challenge that we handle here at Reddit is what you call availability. That is to say, we want the site to always be up. So sometimes you go to a site and they'll say maybe it's down for maintenance or something like that. Sometimes the site just crashes. And we don't want Reddit to crash, A, because we want our users to have access to all the great content on there. And B, it's kind of embarrassing, (laughs) to be honest. So we have a team here called our foundational engineering team. And they essentially monitor the site. 
they check the health of the underlying servers that are serving up all the traffic to make sure that they're fast and available. And if anything goes wrong, these guys actually get paged. So if Reddit has a problem at two in the morning, one of these guys' phones is going to ring and they're going to have to wake up and turn Reddit back on. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are some of the examples of challenges that you might face when you're serving content to hundreds of millions of people? Well, the, the biggest challenge is you want your service to be responsive. It turns out even though we have hundreds of millions of people, they don't always... It's not a consistent flow of traffic. That is to say, you may get more traffic on the, the weekend versus the weekday. Sometimes there's a big event, like right now, Reddit is getting a huge traffic increase because of all the news around these hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks ago, there was a, a big Conor McGregor, Floyd yep, Mayweather yep, fight. Yep, yep. Everybody, and then you got, everybody <laughs> knew Floyd was going to win that one. But when those things happen, the service actually has to scale up to handle mm-hmm. additional traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We can't just keep the number of servers that we have at a high level all the time because it actually costs the company money. So we want the service to scale up on demand. So our operations engineers actually build the underlying infrastructure of Reddit in a way that's elastic. So if more people come to the site, more servers are getting spun up in the background without them having to manually do anything. Well, for the most part, anyway. Interesting. And something that was interesting, so you mentioned that you guys build features that the users want. I know there's several companies in the Valley that allow the engineers to come up with ideas, to A-B test ideas, even maybe pitch the ideas to the management. And some of those ideas become like Gmail's Google Maps of the world. So at Reddit, if you are, let's say, an engineer, how do you go about pitching your idea to the management? And do you guys ever listen to the, take their advice? And explain oh, yeah. what an A-B test is. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, you you guys asked like three questions in one. <laughs> so yeah, Reddit actually has some of the has engineers who really, really are deeply engaged with the product. So when we think about users, turns out like our own engineers who work here really, really know a lot about Reddit. They're really, really passionate about it. Just as passionate about some of our, our users outside the walls. So they come up with ideas all the time that we work on. There's a couple different ways that we take those ideas and get them in, into production. My favorite one, though, that we did back in uh, April for April Fool's Day project was this thing called R slash place. And that was an idea spun up by our, uh, our product and engineering team to essentially set up a canvas where anyone in the world could draw a pixel on the canvas, except they could only draw one pixel on the canvas every five minutes. And that meant that millions of people had to work together to simultaneously draw a great photo. And it turned out to be amazing. You could see over the course of a week, an amazing set of uh, imagery evolve. And it really showed the power of communities at scale. But the other thing that we do here at Reddit is what we call Snooze Day. And Snooze Day is a, um, a celebration of, that we have here every probably two to three months where we allow the entire company, not just the product and engineering team, but the entire company can work effectively on whatever they want. Yeah. So they can propose new ideas that may get shipped. But sometimes we just invite people to give talks or sometimes we'll, you know, all the artwork that you see around the building, like the mural upstairs or some of these cardboard cutouts all come from Snooze Day. Like people just exploring things that they're interested in. The best projects out of Snooze Day often ship. Probably my favorite one from last time, Reddit has a feature called uh, traffic pages where if you run a community, you can see how active it is. By that, I mean how many people visit your community every day. Yeah. That feature had been broken for a long time. It was just reporting the wrong numbers for like for years. And as a Snooze Day project, one of our engineers said, look, I want to go fix that so the numbers are more accurate. And yeah. uh, he put that together in about three days. And then we shipped it, I think, on the sixth day. Wow. Yeah. That's so awesome. you can literally have your idea and your feature shipped to millions of people 
around the world. Yeah, hundreds of millions. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you ever have situations where, since you have hundreds of millions of users, where like some engineers can test out features yeah. on a small number of users, and then if it proves out whatever test that you're doing, then it's implemented like throughout the entire website? Yeah, so this is the, the A-B testing question you yeah. asked earlier. So Reddit uses a couple different techniques to do what's uh, called flighting. Uh, okay. So if we've got a new idea, one option is sometimes we post to r slash beta and we'll say, hey, we're going to have a new feature and you can opt into it if you'd like. And you just get it. Like You can just go there, sign up at any time you want. Uh, an example of that right now is Reddit has a new profile page. So we're trying to be careful about how we roll this out mm -hmm. because profile pages are used in different ways across the site. And we don't want to just roll it out to everybody at once. We want to be very careful about how we roll it out. So we let people opt in. That's one way. It's very much just tell me the feature. Okay, I want it. Great. But then we have things that are more subtle. And we use techniques like A-B testing where you may show one user a particular version of the site, a different user a particular version of the site. And then we measure how engaged or, or how that user's activity changes based on the experience that we're showing them. Yeah. And then we pick the best experience. So if option A had more usage, then maybe we'll roll that out to an increasing number of people. Yeah. So we have features like that that roll out at Reddit. The other thing that we do here just to tack on to that theme is really for any new feature that we roll out, we slowly deploy it. So there's no feature at Reddit where we just go from, you know, nobody has it to, you know, hundreds of millions of people have it. We roll it out slowly to maybe 1% of traffic first, then we wait, we monitor it, make sure everything's okay. 5%, 20%, 50%, and then 100%. So yeah. any feature that we do, we kind of roll out carefully. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So you brought up a lot of things, especially around you know, what users want. Prioritization, obviously, is very important. And these different communities and a lot of things that have been going on in the news around like Harvey and stuff like that. From what I understand, you studied machine learning. I mean, that's been something that's in the news a lot. It's probably, you guys probably have some communities focus on that type of stuff and artificial intelligence and things like that. Can you explain what that is and, and why you studied that? Yeah. I mean, machine learning in a, in a nutshell is really about trying to let computers uh, simulate intelligence. And there's lots of different techniques that are used to power that. But ML really powers some of the best experiences in computing. It's the thing that makes uh, Google work. It's uh, when you read about uh, self-driving cars, it's that. It's, um, you know, ML models are used to fly drones if you guys have any drone technology. Mm -hmm. So ML is showing up in lots and lots of different places in, in computing. I studied ML in uh, college a, a long time ago, and I've always kind of believed in the power of computing in general. Like, I, you know, I, I think that uh, a well-programmed computer can accomplish anything, you know, uh, and... Uh, ML is kind of an artificial intelligence is, is kind of the furthest extension of that idea that computers could somehow attain, uh, you know, uh, intelligence and make decisions on their own to me has always been like an extremely cool idea. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated by that and that's why I got into it. I'm also like a huge science fiction fan. So yeah. that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. yeah. And when yeah. you were breaking down what was going on earlier, you mentioned how like these servers know how to kind of like scale up on their own without them doing it manually. Is that Based off of that type of stuff or no? Not quite. That's uh, a much, that's a, actually a very simple problem. Like what we do is we monitor the number of, of uh, people on the site. And if we exceed certain, certain thresholds, then we'll extend the number of services that we had. Machine learning is much, much more complicated. Like you think about how your, for example, your Facebook feed works. You know, Facebook in the background is looking at all these different signals, like how much time you spend on a particular post, 
who your friends are, the things that you like. It's collecting all these different nuggets of information and making a model of, of you and the things that you would respond to most in your feed. And so whenever you uh, come back to Facebook, you'll maybe get a feed that is, is, is most optimized for you. Yeah. Uh, and that's what ML is. It's about taking all these signals and trying to figure out how to make uh, decisions, building a model that allows you to make decisions. Got it. ML has been around for, I think it's a, it's a buzzword nowadays, but machine learning has been around for years. So can you just give us a little bit of a background of kind of when it started and why are we all like so excited about it now? Or scared about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so machine learning has been around for an extremely long time. I'm not going to do the history justice. I'll, I'll simply say that when I was in college in the 90s studying ML, my professors told me that it w- had been around for like 20 years. So in the 80s, there was a huge uh, boom of people working on different machine learning tasks using a language called Lisp, mm-hmm. which is no longer really widely used. But there was a huge amount of, of anticipation that you could maybe have automated doctors. I remember that being a, a big thing. Wow. Or uh, automated uh, air traffic control, other things like that back in the 80s. But then there was a kind of a bust when it turned out that this technology really wasn't good enough to replace human intuition and hu- human cognition. But around the time the internet came around, something changed. And that is to say the internet enabled two things, like vast quantities of data to be collected. For example, if you guys think about how many Google searches are probably happening right now, I mean, vast quantities of data to use for training these uh, machine learning models. And then the other thing that's happened is cloud computing. So, you know, we described how I scale up Reddit. You know, there's effectively an infinite ocean of computing available in the cloud so vast that I don't even have to think about scaling Reddit, really. There's really just a a threshold someplace. And if we need more machines, well, they'll be available to us. The same thing enables us to apply vast resources to machine learning problems. So you have way more data, way more power. And then very, very recently, there's been an advancement in in a technology called deep learning neural networks. So back when I was in school, neural networks existed. They've actually existed for a very long time. But the ability to feed more data to them and the ability to have those uh, networks be computed at vaster scales have really brought them into, have really made them resurgent. Nowadays, when you go into AI or machine learning, you probably uh, will, will almost immediately learn about neural networks. Whereas when I was coming up, it was more of a, oh yeah, I don't worry about those things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And things like Alexa and things like YouTube recommendations, those are all based on machine learning, right? Because they're customized towards uh, the person who's using it, which is very unique because traditionally, like you can tell a computer what to do, but usually you have to be very specific and be very like pretty much lay out the whole recipe of what you expect the computer to do if the user interacts with it. With machine learning, you're able to give it a lot of data, like examples of what people do. And then the computer can respond to cases that you never showed it before, right? So that's the unique thing about machine learning is that now computer can make their own takeaways based yeah. on uh, the de- and data. How do you train? Them. So you mentioned training and using the data to train these machines. How do you train a machine to learn? <laughs> well, boy, this is a, an in-depth uh, interview. <laughs> yeah. uh, or give us an so, example of something simple. So, so I, I have to keep it at a high level, but you might think if you wanted to train a machine to recognize image or... or cats. Or cats. Yeah, <laughs> that's our particular area of expertise here, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> so you might start by, think about a photograph. What are different features in that photograph? Mm-hmm. 
feature might be the color, like the general color of the photograph. Mm -hmm. It might be that there are particular sharp edges. Maybe you have an advanced feature detector. Maybe there's uh, something that could detect whether or not there's a mountain. Like, so different features are what you are trying to measure against. And then you have what's called a training set. And what you'll do is you'll say, hey, for all of these images, which, have, which I already know what the answers are, these are cats and these aren't cats, we'll measure which features are present in the photos that have cats and we'll measure which features are not, excuse me, we'll and do the opposite for the, uh, the other set of data, which doesn't have cats. And if you do that with enough images, you can eventually, and you pick the right features, that's the other tough part, you can eventually make something that will classify an arbitrary image that wasn't in your training set to tell you whether or not it's a cat. Yeah. So it's all about figuring out, you know, feature, the right features and then collecting enough of the right data to do the training. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just a fun fact about how the feature detection works. So Arthur's my twin brother and um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of folks know that when you upload things into Facebook, Facebook, sometimes they'll auto tag your friends <laughs> in it. So uh, I don't know how Facebook has been able to do it, but it'll actually tag us as ourselves accurately most of the time. Is there yeah. some subtle difference? Uh, there's a, I think our faces look a little bit different, but Facebook's algorithm is able to pick up on uh, how my face looks different than Arthur's. Yeah, and I think what you gave up, both of those are great examples. And, and going back to your healthcare example, it makes you think about things like you know, recognizing x-rays. Like a lot of times people rely on the naked eye, but if it goes like, if you have a bunch of images that recognize something that's like a tumor or something like that, you know, if you have billions of images, a lot of times in the future, it's, it could maybe detect things more accurately than the naked eye. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. And, and a then, lot of the time, kind of to piggyback on that, some people are afraid that AI is going to replace jobs, but at the same time, it could also enhance and make the doctors more powerful. Because now, instead of just having a doctor who may have seen like 10,000 x-rays in his lifetime, you have a machine that's probably looked at hundreds of millions. Yeah. And then the doctor could use that data to pick up on things they, he may have overlooked or yeah. uh, other things. And then the final thing I'll say on this point is essentially like on the other side of what Arthur just said is like part of the reason why we launched the podcast is because, you know, AI, machine learning, all these things are making things more efficient. So a lot of things that we're studying now and a lot of the jobs that we're doing may not exist in the future. Or a lot of things that we might have done in the factory may be done by a robot in the future. Mm. However, there will be new roles that you can do to program that new machine or to work with that new machine or train that new machine. And so it's very important to ha adopt the mindset of lifelong learning. And so going back to Nick's story. I was going to uh, just agree with you. Like <laughs> yeah. if you're in a software, like a software engineer, you have to be adaptable because, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure you guys know about front end engineering, mm -hmm. JavaScript frameworks. and Yeah. Those sorts of things change all on the order of like every six months to yeah. a year. So, you know, software engineering is about continuous change and continuous learning, continuous growth. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so, you know, you got into this space like from gaming or something like that? Or, or oh. like, how, how'd you get into wanting to learn how to code? Yeah, I think it's a long story, you know, specifically on how I got into learning, wanting to learn to code. Yeah, no, it was gaming. I was at one of my, uh, my buddy's house, a guy named Billy, and he uh, showed me. I had been playing an 8-bit Nintendo and he's like, no, come over to my house and I'll show you something cooler. Uh -huh. And he had uh, Wolfenstein 3D, which was a precursor to a game called Doom. I remember Doom. Yeah, <laughs> really good game. <laughs> he showed me that. He showed me a game called uh, Wing Commander. Uh -huh. And at the end, we were, uh, we were done playing these games. He actually popped up the command line and pulled up a thing called QBasic and showed me a game that he had written in QBasic. 
can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was something like you had to, uh, what is it? What's that game? A caterpillar, I think. Yeah. Where, where like the snake. Snake. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. So it was like snake. You know, you could, uh, you got a score depending on how long the snake got. He showed me that if he tweaked a bit of the program, he could actually make it, the snake go faster or he could make it so you got more points. And I was like fascinated by this. Uh-huh. So the very next day I asked my dad to take me to the uh, bookstore and I bought this book called uh, C++ in 12 Easy Lessons. Nice. And uh, that is how I started my, uh, my coding career with like one of the hardest programming languages. <laughs> so those 12 lessons weren't so easy. There's no way to learn C++ in 12 easy lessons. Yeah, it is you not mentioned possible. Your, your dad, you, you grew up in PG County. Was he also a programmer as well? Oh, no. My, my dad was not a programmer. My dad was actually a public defender, but okay. he was just a voracious, I would say, intellectual. He, he is into a lot of different things. So when I was growing up, he had exposed me to uh, classical music, science and technology oh, nice. books, you know, his law books, uh, literature, you know, all sorts of things. So he yeah. was really just voracious. Yeah. One of the things that he had as a virtue of being a, a public defender is that he got a computer to replace his typewriter. So he got this, uh, it was a 086 Tandy 1000, one of the wow. very, very first personal computers. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, kind of sit on his lap you know, I think I was like maybe four years old, Mm -hmm. you know, just banging on that keyboard. You know, I mostly played games on that as well. So my dad uh, really had an early influence on uh, my appreciation for a lot of different things, computing in particular. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting, which, you know, it sounds like he read a lot of books. Uh, yeah. being, being in the law and things like that, and yeah. why you were at the bookstore. And <laughs> that, it, I'm not kidding you. Like we uh, we did a lot of nerdy things. Me and my dad would go to the bookstore together. We also uh-huh. we live in D.C., so we used to go to museums a lot together. Yeah. And if you go to my, um, <laughs> I got photos of this. I can prove it. If you go to my house today, my dad, every room in the house that his is wall to wall books. Wow. And they're about just the wild, any topic you can imagine. The guy just loves learn, learning. Yeah. And, and your mother, mother is also passionate about education as well. She right? is. My, my mom was a, a school teacher. Mm-hmm. I think the difference there, though, is my mom has always been much more focused. Mm-hmm. So my mom is uh, uh, disciplined. She's a, a, a Jamaican immigrant. Mm-hmm. And she brought a lot of like strictness and hustle with her from Jamaica. So her and my dad make a really interesting pair. Yeah. My dad is just all, sometimes all over the place. Uh, whereas my mom is just, she's got that taskmaster discipline. Uh, <laughs> she knows how to get a room full of, uh, you know, f- uh, f- fifth graders to line up straight, you know? <laughs> well, sounds like a nice combination was created too. What, what part of Jamaica, by the way? Actually, I don't remember. I know I th- she told me it was outside of Kingston, but I don't okay. remember the exact. Cool. We've got family in Montego Bay. That's why. Oh, I, very cool. Oh, cool. So yeah. going back to the gaming, you know, you, you read the C++ stuff, you mm-hmm. Were you know doing the twelve easy steps, yeah, or twelve semi easy, quasi easy hard <laughs> steps, and what did that lead to? So I think the main takeaway from that is I learned between that and and also having access to a very early version of the internet through my mom. Mm-hmm. Should have mentioned that who got internet access via a Unix shell from her job as a teacher, wow. uh, which I was very fortunate to get. I learned a lot about different sort of career paths that I wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. Uh, Shout out to mom. Yeah, yeah. Well, both my parents are amazing people. Yeah. So I got exposure to a lot of different ideas that I wouldn't have other otherwise been exposed to. And one of those ideas that it was was, you know, PC computing and the idea that I could make a career, you know, uh, programming computers. And, you know, growing up in in PG County, Maryland, I was very, very rare in that respect. I, you know, it was me and maybe three other guys at my school that even had PCs. 
you know, we, we formed like, obviously like the little nerd, nerd click. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Reading magazines about like someday we'll have cable modems and it'll be so fast. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, we grew up in an environment which was really like, you know, frankly, anti-nerd didn't really appreciate, uh, this sort of stuff, but it gave me a different way to think about my career and what I wanted to do with my life. And then it gave me uh, more opportunities, which is the, the important thing. So I knew that if I wanted to get to the kind of career goals that I started to have in mind, like, you know, people like Bill Gates were my early heroes, that I would have to find a different path than, than some of uh, what some of my buddies were doing at that time. Yeah. So I started to get very, very, very focused on academics around uh, junior high to the point where you know, at some point I decided that rather than go to the local school, uh, I won't, I won't shout them out, but, um, (laughs) rather than go there where I knew that they wouldn't have access to, uh, internships and they wouldn't have like the best computer lab and that sort of stuff. There was a, a magnet program that you could join in Maryland. It's called science and technology program. And, uh, getting into that program to me became like, you know, almost an escape. Like if I could only get in that program, I'll have like the the best possible life. And in order to get to that thing, it's kind of like taking the uh, SAT. You've got to you've got to study and take a test. So I studied for three months straight. I did nothing but like practice problems for three months straight. I, you know, I I tend to be really, really goal oriented. So I wanted that goal. So I I like stopped going outside. I literally would come home every day study. And I took this test and uh, I ended up uh, fourth place on the waiting list. Wow. But fortunately, was uh, was still able to get in. That's awesome. uh, and then from that moment on, I I went to a different school. I had to take a, a forty minute uh, bus ride every day to get to school. But it gave me access to another level of academics that yeah. I hadn't had before. Yeah, it was also kind of jarring because I was moving from a school that was ninety percent black to a school where uh, you know I it wasn't yeah. that way. Well, I, <laughs> so, I, I did want to yeah. talk about that because you mentioned your environment. Your school is ninety percent black. Can you talk about? just the environment of PG County, like where, or where you grew up. Um, and like, cause there's not a lot of brothers that we see in these types of roles. Can you talk about that? Or a lot of people don't see in these yeah, roles. Black, black VCs of engineering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I don't see a lot either. Yeah, no. So I grew up in PG County. I, I like PG County. It is, I don't know what the stats are now, but when I was growing up there. It was certainly more than 85, maybe 90% black, mm-hmm. which is definitely not what I'm used to out here in San Francisco and certainly not when I was in like uh, school at, in Boston or, or uh, working in Seattle. I like going home now. I feel comfortable. Right. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, I, I think I have a philosophy I've developed over time that sometimes the crispest way I can say it is like comfort sometimes is the enemy of progress. Mm. And I knew that if I wanted to, to achieve the career goals that I had in mind for myself, that I couldn't stay in PG County and yeah. be comfortable, I had to kind of get out and go where the opportunities were. Yep. So I ended up going to school in, uh, in Greenbelt. Greenbelt's a different place now, but, but back then, uh, Greenbelt uh, was, was a very, very different demographic makeup. So I went from a school being uh, 90% uh, black junior, uh, junior high to a, a high school where in that science and tech program, I think that they were on the order of certainly no more than uh, eight, I would say, uh, black people that I would interact with uh, in class on a day-to-day basis. But in return, I got access to better education and internship program that allowed me to end up working at NASA and eventually a, uh, a kind of, I guess, training camp for MIT called yeah. the, the MITES program. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I hadn't taken that test and decided to, uh, to go to that school, I wouldn't have had access to those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, can you share with us kind of how you got that internship in high school to work at NASA? Sure. One is you, you've got to get good grades. 
So I think, you know, the, <laughs> if you want any sort of uh, advanced opportunities in life, you know, putting in a lot of work tends to generate serendipity, like tends to generate opportunities. You'll, you'll find that, pe- you know, people make their own luck. That is to say, if you see any person that has a great career, there's usually a lot of hard work behind it. So yeah. I got uh, into that NASA program by frankly applying <laughs> and <laughs> having the best application and the best grades. Uh, the key thing was that I was in a school which would even give me that chance. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I love what you said about comfort because uh, my mom always says, uh, you know, comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. Oh, yeah. So, so that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on this podcast, we actually like to deconstruct people's mindsets when it comes to overcoming adversity, when it comes to daily routines that help you get to that like pro level of like masterfulness. Yeah. So in your case, it sounds like from a young young age, you've set goals for yourself and you've been able to achieve them. What are some uh, strategies and tactics that you've been using to kind of get that discipline? Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I could open an Excel or Google sheet that I, I've had for more than eight years now. And it's got literally, I'm not kidding you. It's got every goal that I ever wanted to do over almost the last wow. decade list, listed out. <laughs> that is awesome. And it has both personal goals, career goals, and then I kind of track mm-hmm. whether or not I actually achieved them. And I've got some in, in there now too. I won't, wow. I, don't, I may I'll share them later. But um, I've always just had a very, very, very goal-oriented mindset. And then for any goal that I want to achieve, I break down the steps that you would need to actually achieve that goal. And then any problem broken down into enough small steps can be achieved. So you don't just so, say, hey, I want to become an engineer. You're like, hey, this is what I need to do to get to the first level, almost like a video game. This is what I need to do as for the first level, second level, third, in order for me to get to the top, right? You, you hit the nail on the head, man. <laughs> it's just like, it's, in some ways, it can be like a game. Like any, uh, any problem, including your own career, can be thought of that way. That yeah. if, I, if I do this step and that step and this step, it'll open this door and I'll, and I'll go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, for, for most of the challenges that I face, I kind of think of them yeah. that way. Yeah. How do you approach setting, uh, I guess, goals? Like, because some people, are very realistic and they try to like kind of break everything into small steps and make it kind of easy to accomplish. But there's also other people that set very high goals that probably have like a higher chance of failure. So where do you fall in? And like, how do you go about setting the goals for yourself to make sure that you are eventually able to get? That's uh, a tough one. I would give you different answers at different points in my life. Uh, yeah. But I always set tough but realistic goals for myself. Yeah. I'm, I'm not uh, so optimistic that I'll, I'll take on you know, an impossible challenge. But I will say that one thing that has been valued to me in terms of, of taking on new challenges mm-hmm. is if you're willing to get, going back to comfort, if you're willing yep. to get uncomfortable, you will see that there's lots and lots of opportunities around you all the time. Yeah. So, you know, at work, when I was at Microsoft, I would always be the person who would look for tasks that no one else wanted to do, but were also impactful. Mm-hmm. And even if I didn't have any skill in them, I would go jump on them and yeah. uh, and try and take care of it. Yeah. And if you do that enough, like a lot of good things happen. Like one, you get exposure to lots and lots of different challenges. So in my career, you know, we talked a lot about machine learning, but over the course of my career, I've got to work on games, machine learning, search technologies, natural language processing. You know, now I'm uh, here, you know, working at Reddit, which is a, a consumer and, and uh, you know, social networking site. You know, I can go on and on and on. But if you're willing to be flexible and get out of your comfort zone, uh, you'll get more and more opportunities. And the more opportunities that you can take on, the the more scope. Yeah, and you'll always be learning. It sounds like your spreadsheet's like the MVP of, of a workflow, 
workflow management software like Trello or like a agile <laughs> methodology, like or Caldwell's methodology. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you have um, any specific routines that you do? Either like if you don't mind sharing, like either when you wake up or before you go to bed, that kind of keeps you kind of in the loop of like being more present or uh, kind of more accountable with how your day progresses. So I, I do, but I I'm, will caveat that by saying I don't recommend everyone use my routine. Yeah. I, I tend to be pretty intense. Uh, so I'll say that for a long time, and you know, you guys who know, I just d- described my history. It has been true for me for a long time that putting in hard work led to uh, rewards. The more energy I put into into work, the better uh, things got, both uh, you know, in, in lots of different ways. So my daily routine is is reflective of that. I usually wake up. At about 5.30 in the morning and I start working. I have a OneNote uh, that I keep all of the tasks. I guess you use Trello, but yeah. I, I use OneNote because I used to work at Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same idea. You've got a list of tasks ordered by a priority. I wake up, I start working at 5.30 going from you know things that I can accomplish at 5.30 in the morning. And I work until about 8.30, clean up, come into the office and continue. I uh, don't usually eat breakfast or, or lunch because I've gotten into a habit of just eating big dinners, mm-hmm. you get more hours in the day. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, some, you know, if you put more hours in, sometimes you get, you get, get more out. So I, t- I will either have like a very small breakfast. I almost never eat lunch. The only reason I'll eat lunch is if it's to meet with my team. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think like being a manager, you have to find ways to, to get to know your team and understand what they, uh, what they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Or if it's uh, meeting with uh, other uh, leaders uh, in the organization. But I tend to to use my time extremely efficient efficiently, and as you be, as you get kind of higher in your career, you have less time to spend anyway. So, like as an exec, like actually spending this time with you guys is, yeah. is kind of like a luxury uh, of time. <laughs> but as an exec, you know, you kind of your life gets chunked up into these like 15, 30 minute segments where you're meeting with this team, meeting with that team, meeting with this leader, going to talk to this partner, and you're just back to back to back. Every minute of your day is is accounted for. So you, you end up having to be very, very efficient anyway. So if you're um, in terms of discipline, which is what you asked about, I'm just very, very careful about how I use my own time. And then that translates into how uh, I run my organization. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if you were to work on my team, you would see that meetings often maybe on the calendar for an hour and only last like eight minutes yeah. because we'll just be like, Hey guys, let's sit down. Do we have anything to talk about? Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Okay, nothing else. Meeting's Bye. over. See you. You got the time back. <laughs> right. So I try and treat my employees' time with the same value that I treat my own. Yeah. I think that uh, time is, is the one asset you can't get back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very re- respectful of how uh, I use uh, the time of the people in yeah. my organization. How do you? So it sounds like there's so many responsibilities and so many meetings. And being an exec, I could imagine like there's everyone's probably pulling you in different directions. So how do you prioritize your? time and your tasks. So you mentioned that you wake up at 5.30 and they have a list. So what do you use? Like what type of framework do you use to prioritize the to-do list? You have to decide like what's urgent, what's important and what can't be delegated. I think that's the simplest way that I, I could say it. So in my list, I continually make a list of things that are important enough to deserve my attention. For things that are urgent... I uh, will uh, try and find some way to delegate them so that I can take on other urgent tasks. And I'm fortunate uh, here at Reddit to have some really great directors. You met uh, Anand earlier, but you know there's several other directors who can pick up uh, urgent tasks and handle them themselves. But uh, sometimes you can't <laughs> delegate everything, and then I need to decide that I'm going to spend my own, my own time on it and, and handle it myself. 
And that's how you scale, right? Really, any organization scales because of people and processes. And yeah. the simple thing that that I uh, I use is to hire great people. Yeah, uh, and then the org yeah. can get bigger that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you know, you went to MIT, you did these community programs, things like that. Was Microsoft your first job out of school? It was. Uh, so I was in school studying. Um, MIT has a specialization in machine learning. So you you take uh, engineering, electrical engineering, and computer science, and then you pick a specialization. So Mine was machine learning. And uh, when I graduated, I wanted to continue working on those type of projects. Microsoft, you know, a lot of people ask me why I went there. There's a a couple of reasons. But one, they had a great group at the time called the Natural Interactive Services Division, which only did uh, machine learning and NLP projects. So for me, it was like a really great opportunity. The other thing is uh, Microsoft was a very well-established company by then. So people often ask me, like, why I didn't go work at like uh, Facebook, Google? So back in um, you know 2003, Facebook and Google were, were actually, believe it or not, like not like those huge mega hits well, that they are Facebook right now. Well, Facebook didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Right? Like, love, I, I swear, I was trying to explain this to a yeah. classroom the other day, and they looked at me like I was insane. So at that time, it would have been relatively risky to go and work at you know one of those companies. And I had just come out of PG County, Maryland, so mm-hmm. I was like. Oh, and I went to school and I had uh, like a massive amount of, uh, of student debt. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine myself coming from an environment where I really just wanted to hustle and make some money and maybe yeah. buy my parents like a house or something like that. Going back home and telling them, oh, I accumulated all this debt and now I'm going to go work at like this random startup and maybe I'll make money and maybe I won't. I don't, wasn't willing to take that risk yeah. after I graduated. And Microsoft had a place which was low risk, everybody knew what it was, and they were going to let me work on machine learning. So I was like, That's done, awesome. I'll go yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. And back then you mentioned that like recently there's been a lot of uh, progress in computing. So back in early 2000s, what type of, I guess, uh, training or what type of problems were you guys solving in the early 2000s before cloud computing? So back in the early 2000s, this might be a little bit esoteric, but uh, <laughs> doing um, in, uh, natural language processing back then, required a lot of manual tuning of different what you call language models. Mm -hmm. And then we were slowly getting into more statistical, what's called statistical language models. And I'll give you like a very specific example. If you use Word today, Microsoft Word, there's a little blue squiggle. And that blue squiggle is called the statistical spell checker. That was like one of the very first projects that I worked on at Microsoft. And if even if a word is spelled correctly, you can use statistics to determine if that u- word is being used out of context. Mm. All right. So I'm trying to think of a, of an example, like <laughs> no worries, no worries. Yeah. So but- it looks, so essentially what it does is it looks at the words in a sentence, regardless of whether or not they're spelled correctly, it'll tell you if they're, they're used out of context and flag it with a blue squiggle. That was one of the first things that, that we did. That's very yes. cool. And I know you worked for Microsoft for over a decade and you, you mentioned you started out as a uh, like college uh, graduate, and then you rose all the way up through the ladder. So what would, which attributes would you say helped you kind of get promoted and progress through your career? Yeah. I mean, so a really great thing that helped me through my early uh, career is that I did have a specialization. So I encourage anyone like who is early in their career to pick something and dive really, really deep into it. My specialization was NLP and machine learning. So at that time, there weren't a lot of people who knew uh, how that worked. So I got pulled into a lot of different projects that I uh, wouldn't otherwise have had access to. 
and got to ship in uh, ship software and office and exchange and, and Bing and lots of different places across yeah. the company. And you, you also mentioned mentorship. So like during your gaming days, there was somebody that looked like you that kind of inspired you and gave you some opportunities to, to put your name on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was. There was a, there was a guy named uh, Derek Smart and okay. uh, he technically gave me my first professional uh, software engineering job, technically. Mm-hmm. So this was like my freshman year of uh, college at MIT. This is before I realized how difficult MIT was. I decided that I was going to do a side hustle where I got to work on games because I was really passionate about games. And Derek Smart is a um, independent software publisher. I think the name of his company is uh, 3000 AD. And he's a black dude. Uh, That's dope. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. So this, uh, this black independent software publisher reaches out to me and says, hey, can you help me work on this game. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll try and make time for it. But unfortunately, it turns out MIT is a really hard school. Yeah. So I only got to work with Derek for, I think, about four months. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how I managed that. But mm-hmm. he uh, he credited me on a game called Battlecruiser Millennium. Oh. You know, really interesting guy. Like uh, kind of, I won't go into all the details about it, but yeah. kind of fam- semi-famous early internet uh, celebrity. Love it. We'll look it yeah. up. As- and um, you mentioned that you recommend uh, folks who are starting out to focus on a specific area. If you were graduating college today, which areas would you, would, like, would you find interesting? And like, what would you focus on? It's crazy, but I, now it would, it would still be artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's, you know, so when I graduated, my advisor actually told me not to go into it. He said that there's no future in this. You should go into bioinformatics instead. So thank you, advisor. Uh, <laughs> I don't know anyone who works in bioinformatics now. now I think about it. Um, but nowadays, because AI and ML and, and cloud computing and, and the you know just advancements in, in all of these fields are really uh, hot, and I think there's going to be uh, opportunities in AI and machine learning. If I were trying to get a specialization, that's what that's what I would pick nowadays. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, what can we expect from you over the next few years? Oh, you mean like? Uh, what are my career goals and so forth? This life period doesn't have to be career goals. Uh, you know, that's a tough question. I If I look at my goal sheet. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> or I guess, what, what do you have on there that you haven't accomplished yet? I have a few things. I have to, I have to be careful what I list on there. But um, I will say that one thing that I've been doing that I'm really passionate about since I moved down from, from Seattle is spending more time giving back. Yeah. You know, I had a really good career at Microsoft. I hustled really hard. And um, you know, accomplished a lot in terms of getting to own and launch multiple products. Becoming a general manager at Microsoft is pretty rare. Uh, it's a it's a real career height. Yeah. But what I didn't really get to spend a lot of time doing during that rise is giving back as much as I would want to. Yeah. And now that I'm in San Francisco, there's way more opportunities to do it. You yeah. know? So um, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, with my Dev Color crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking uh, to groups like Hackbright or yep. just mentoring people who reach out to me. Yeah. I put like a significant amount of time. Into I was that. actually I, telling uh, yeah. one of my coworkers who went to Dev Bootcamp that uh, we're going to be interviewing you, and he was like, "Oh, I actually heard Nick speak uh, at one of the graduation parties or something like that." Yeah, no, I've, I I am out there. If you, if you want me to talk at your event, I will come out and do it. I just like trying to give back. I feel like I have a lot of debt, you know, to pay off for the last you know fifteen years. And once you uh, once you reach the top, I think it's your responsibility to send the elevator back down. So I'm trying to trying to do that. We well, appreciate that, man. Yeah. Thank you for for sharing time with us. I think Tim was gonna take us yeah. into lightning round. Yeah. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round, and we try to um, 
ask questions that are very actionable and strategy-based. So if you can just share uh, resources or tactics that you've used to, to get to where you are today, our listeners will be able to implement it in their own lives as they're trying to break into tech. So Arthur, with that, take it away. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of some of the people that had effect on you when you were growing up. Kind of what are some of, who are some of your role models that you've had since you were, like, as you were growing up and today? My role model when I was growing up was were really my parents who I already talked about for different reasons. They really formed me. But then in terms of people who I, you know, it, were, it was inspired by and wanted to be like, it was Bill Gates. And the, the reason is he had this vision about putting a PC on every desk and he was able to do it and he got paid. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of like all those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, we also know like giving your parents and how much they love education, they were around a lot of books and things like that and music. So, you know, what books uh, were most relevant to, you know, shaping your current mindset? Yeah. And then what music do you listen to whenever you are in like work mode? <laughs> the music. Okay. I'll tell you the, I'll tell the music. Like the books. So in terms of like just learning how to code, like for anyone who wants to learn how to code nowadays, I would say that there are just huge numbers of online learning. So I wouldn't read a book. I would go take an online course. Uh, there's so many of them now. Like when I was learning, I had to get a physical book, learn C++. Nowadays, you can go online, type in like, you know, free Python classes and you will find like thousands of them. So I, I would say do that if you want to learn how to code. But when your career starts to take off and you get into management, there's a few books that like really spoke to me. The first one is a book called Managing Humans. Okay. And I can't remember the name of the author. He's like a really famous author. Sorry, but maybe you can figure we'll it out. Find we'll find it. It's called Managing Humans. And the takeaway that I had from it, it's about what it's like to be a manager. So like when you're coming up as a coder, you think that everything is just about the software. And uh, it's really important to write good software, but management is about software and people. And managing humans like really gave me insight into that, that, you know, you have to put just as much work into your team and the people on your team as you do into the software. So I love that book. It's, it's what like got me excited about management. This is the second book, which uh, is written by a guy named Jack Welch. And Jack Welch is, um, this is like a, you have to be careful when you read this book because Jack Welch is a, uh, he used to be the, the CEO of General Electric back in the day. And uh, he's got a lot of different management techniques that I, I would caution people not to replicate. But one uh, thing that he really does have in spades is hustle. So his, his book is called Winning. And it's about like how to build a team that has the attitude to win and compete. Yeah. Now, don't just read that book and blindly follow everything he says, because <laughs> I think the techniques that you use to, to run GE in the 90s probably wouldn't translate into you know, a team full of millennials yeah. like nowadays. But the attitude is, is what I took away from yeah. it. And there's still a lot of good practical advice in there today. I'll be super honest with you on the music thing. Uh, whenever I start a new team, I listen to uh, Shook Ones Part 2. Okay, classic. <laughs> R.I.P. Prodigy. Pro yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. Prodigy. I listen to that on Blast. I think I've listened to that song about 500 times. Yeah, it's one of the... <laughs> all their music videos are amazing too, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. There's some good gifts online about yeah. that. Like, yeah. if you ever like, if you ever just need to get amped up about how awesome your team is, Shook yeah. Ones Part 2 can't be... 100%. Survival of the fittest. <laughs> Yeah. So um, the next question, it's about the future. So there's a lot of people who have uh, different viewpoints on the future of work and what will happen to tech like 10, 20 years down the line. So for someone who is um, maybe kind of coming out of college, 
you having spent over a decade, maybe two, almost two decades in tech, what advice do you have for them in terms of how to look ahead and be able to navigate this landscape? I mean, in tech, I'll just be honest, you can't really look ahead. Like, I'm certain that someone graduating today is going to have like, I mean, two years from now, they'll probably be very, very different challenges. I think I, AI is something that's going to become increasingly more important. But the, the thing I would advise people about isn't, isn't necessarily to, to make a bet that AI is going to be the thing for the next 20 years. It's more about that if you're going to be in tech, you've got to be okay with change. And it's really more of an attitude about continual learning, continual growth. And being okay with getting uncomfortable because you're going to learn something new and it's going to make you stronger for that next challenge. So, I mean, in computing, no one can tell you what's going to happen four years from now, let alone like 20 years. So you just have to be ready to adapt and learn. Yeah. And pay attention to the trends and things like that and stuff like that. What's your favorite community on Reddit? Ooh, that's a tough one. There's two that I like check almost every day, but... My favorite one is a, is one called uh, Data is Beautiful. So, you know, as an ML guy and a person who uh, was running a business intelligence team at Microsoft, I get really, really fascinated about different ways that people can display data and, and, and so forth. And then the other one is the complete opposite of that. And I don't make fun of me because I'm telling you this is great. It's called Animals Being Jerks. And <laughs> it is it's exactly what it sounds like. So if you go on there, there's one... <laughs> Sorry. There was one on there yesterday, which was like a bear going into somebody's refrigerator. Like the bear broke yeah. in their house, went in their refrigerator and <laughs> took out a sandwich and then ate the sandwich in front of the owner's face. It's <laughs> just cracking up. It's just, it's just animals being uh, mean to each other and to humans. It's like, it's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Well, you know, we, again, we, we appreciate you giving back. And we would love to uh, figure out, you know, the best way to like support you and, and stay in touch with you. I know you're pretty active on Twitter. Like what's the best way for people to like interact with you or like contribute to, you know, the projects that you're working on? Yeah. I mean, there, there's two uh, ways to get in touch with me. Uh, one is uh, my Reddit profile. So if you go to uh, reddit.com slash you slash Nick called, that'll mm-hmm. take you to my profile and you can leave me comments. And then sometimes I give people free gold if they leave a nice comment. <laughs> Don't leave a mean comment, please. <laughs> and then um, the other thing is I do a lot of writing. So I'm on Medium. I think it's, uh, I forget how Medium URLs work, but if you, uh, if you search for Nick Caldwell on Google, it's one of the top links are all of my Medium posts. And um, what I like there is if, if people have questions or advice about uh, navigating their careers or management, I usually take a weekend and, and write up an article and, and try to answer questions there. All right. Last, last question. What's the one sentence piece of advice that you want to leave everybody with before we close up? I'll give you... The best advice anyone gave me, it's leaders are responsible for what happens next. That is that is the best advice anyone's ever given me. I like that a lot. I like awesome. that a lot. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. And we'll keep in touch. Absolutely, yeah. man. Thank thanks. you. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.